What's going on? Jason Bay here. Welcome to Blissful Prospecting. In this podcast, I have conversations with top reps, sales leaders, and other experts to teach you how to turn complete strangers into paying customers. I'm really excited for our guest today, Anthony Iannarino. We're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff today, but his newest book, Elite Selling Strategies, is really good. We're going to talk about modern versus legacy sales approaches, and we might talk about a little bit of Van Halen. <laughs> you know, wherever the wherever the conversation takes us, but it's uh it's good to jam with you on this Anthony. We've talked uh a lot offline, uh never done a podcast or created any content together. So That's I'm excited true. for this. I was trying to decide, am I a paying customer now? Is that what happened? Did you convert me <laughs> in, in on the way in? Yeah. So um I gotta ask you because this book the whole premise is really, you know, sort of interesting and we've talked about it, but for the folks listening that are you know, thinking this whole one up thing, mm -hmm. you know, where did this idea come from for you? Because you have this like really macro perspective, I feel like, cause you've been doing this for so long and you not only help train salespeople, like you have a couple businesses too, you know, yeah. which is, which is really interesting, but where did this whole idea concept, where did it come from for you? Well, I, I can tell you how I learned it, and then I can I can also tell you where I found it. Uh, I'm a I'm a very very wide reader, so I, I read all kinds of things. I listen to all kinds of things, and one of the things that I listen to is uh, Alan Watts. And you might not who do you know who Alan, Alan Watts is? Okay. Yeah, there's a podcast. I forget what it's called, but it's just old recordings of him. Yeah, giving right. Speeches. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So. Alan Watts is a, a spiritual guy and he, he became a Buddhist when he was maybe like 12 years old in England. And then he started running around and spending more time with the Buddhists and Hindus and all kinds of people. And he's a really, really interesting guy. And, and one of the audios that's probably on the podcast, he reads uh, an article by Jay Haley about psychoanalysis. And in that thing that he reads that Jay Haley wrote, it's a story. Jay Haley was uh, working on strategic interventions uh, with Gregory Bateson, who was uh, a polymath, like a computer guy, like all kinds of stuff very early on. They were both at Stanford. And this person came over to the United States from England, and they were a student at Potter's College somewhere in England. I don't know where that is, but... I've been all over England. I have, haven't run into that particular college, but this person was getting psychoanalysis and learning psychoanalysis. And they wrote a three volume book about the nature of psychoanalysis and the relationship of one up from the psychoanalyst position. And, oh, wow. uh, and, as, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, okay, I'm listening to this. And I'm like, all right, I gotta, I gotta do a little bit deeper dive into this. Then I picked up Jay Haley's book and, and it's really funny. So Haley explains the, the concept of one up as if it's one upmanship, which is, uh, Jason, did I meet you in Columbia when I was getting my MBA there in 1996? And you're like, dude, no, I'm not old enough. And I didn't go to Columbia. You know, that's just me trying to put you down in front of you. You just sound like else. an asshole. Yeah. A bit when yeah, you do yeah. So you're like, that's not nice. Like, you know, I wasn't yeah. there. You're just trying to put me down in front of other people. That's not yeah. the idea. The idea is, oh, sorry. Hang on.
my wife let her cat out. So. Sorry. No, I'll <laughs> you can good. leave that in if you want to. So he <laughs> he starts to explain the relationship between the psychoanalyst and the person who's receiving a treatment. And what happens is they want the psychoanalyst to be in the one-up position. They need somebody that knows more than they do so that they can get some help. But yeah. over time, what happens is the person who's receiving the psychoanalysis at some point decides that they don't really like that person being in the one-up position. And they say something like, uh, Dr. Bay, you're a terrible doctor. Uh, you've never done anything to help me. I have no idea why I come here and I have no idea what I'm paying you for. And now all these people are following Freud's you know, direction, which is have them on a couch with their feet up so they're not planted, sit behind them so they can't see any reactions that you might have. And then when they yeah. say something like that, you say nothing. You just don't say anything. You just wait. And then it turns into, oh, Dr. Bay, I'm so sorry. Like I, I, It's been super helpful working with you. I don't know why I said that. I really apologize. And I've gotten a lot from this. And they put themselves back into the one down position. And if that doesn't work, then they say something like, uh, I'm sleeping with my sister. You know, and then they're waiting for like somebody to do something. And the, the psychoanalyst just says nothing. And then they go, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so there's this dynamic where they're trying to pull control back of it. And then they can't because somebody's in the one up position. So when I started to read this, it started to dawn on me. If you've had clients and you have and you do, uh, sometimes they think they're in the one up position. But from your position, they're definitely not in the one-up position. And now why is yeah. that true? We do the same thing we do every single day. We sell the same thing. We, have, we become experts in our industry. And we have a very good idea about how to help somebody. And then the person on the other side doesn't buy what we sell very often. So maybe it's, it's, if you're an enterprise, we're up like 10 years maybe between decisions. Well, a lot of things changed over those 10 years. And those assumptions that were good when you decided that you were going to make the first decision, it was perfect. But now 10 years has gone by. And those decisions that you made, those assumptions don't fit anymore. Like the whole world changed in that period of time. And you think you're going to make the same decision that you made in the past. But now we have to update your thinking about these things. So the relationship for me that immediately became clear is that as the salesperson, you were obligated to be one up you're obligated. Like it's not a choice and you can go like, well, someday I'd like to be one up. No, you have to be one up. Your job is to lead the client to the better results that they need because you know more than they do, not about everything, but about the decision that they need to make and about how to go about getting the best results. And, and that's really what the one up position is. Now they're in the one down position as long as you leave them in the one down position. But my argument is if you have the counsel and the advice and the recommendations and you're transferring it to that other person, they're going to make the decision that you would have them make because you taught them how to think through how to make a good decision in this particular case. If you can't help them make a good decision, then you're, you're operating something that's not right. I'm going to say for this time, like for another time, I, I know all the legacy approaches I love solution selling. I understand it very well. I've made a lot of money doing that. But right now, there's a, a different need on the buyer side. They need to understand what's going on in the world. How do I make this decision right now? 
How do I make sure that it works for us? All of these things that they have as concerns and, and things that would cause them to not be able to complete their buyer's journey, which about, they say 54% of people who decide to do some initiative, it, it dies. So more than half. And my argument would be is we were not giving them enough help. Like we need, we need to give them more help to get them through the whole thing, even if it's no at the end or they buy from someone else. Yeah. I mean, there's so many places I want to go. I have to ask you though, like when you were learning how to sell and be one up, did you ever run into any times where you did it and you maybe came off like really arrogant or, you know, kind of messed it up? Was there a learning curve, <laughs> you know, for you? No, Cause it's what I worry about with people that are going to listen to this that are not thinking no, about so it. Like that. The, the other thing is, is that you're one down when it comes to knowing the client's business. So yeah. they know more about their business than you do. And so you're one down. How do you get out of being one down? You ask somebody to educate you about their business yeah. so that you don't have to be one down anymore. And I, I was 25 when I, I sat down with a guy named Dallas Mulder, who was with Structure. Was a, that was a division of the Limited. And I was helping on a temporary staffing at that time. And they, they invited me to all of their planning meetings. So I'm sitting with all these people in a giant company and I'm watching them put spreadsheets up and talk about their plans. And they keep talking about throughput, like throughput this and what throughput numbers. And I didn't understand it was a number. So after the meeting, I walked into Dallas's office and I said, um, I know what throughput means. I understand like it's amount of something that goes through something. And I understand that, but you guys are doing it as math. Like how's the math work? And he goes, do you want to see the spreadsheet? And I said, yeah, I'd love to see a spreadsheet. Yeah. And he pulls up the spreadsheet and says, this part right here, labor, that's you. I'm dividing how much product we leave, have leaves the warehouse divided by your labor cost. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I know. So I, I didn't ever bomb out trying to be one up, but I was talking way, I was way out over my skis. So two weeks yeah. later, three weeks later, I walk into another distribution center and I stood, uh, what do you guys throughput numbers look like? And they're like, this guy knows about throughput. Like he's not one of us. Yeah. And they're like, how did you learn throughput? <laughs> I only knew it like this much. <laughs> I just yeah. knew that that was the language. And so I started, I did it about five times in a row and more people started explaining things to me. And then I was less ignorant than I was when I was trying to figure it out. You're continually in the entire part of your life here, whether it's sales or just your life in general, you're mostly one down, mostly. You're yeah. ignorant of almost everything that's known except for a few things. And then those few things, that's what you're really working with. So if you want to get out of being one down, you got to do a lot of work. Like you have to have a lot of people help you, share with you. You need to know people who know things that you don't know, which is why you know, I like people like Ken Wilbur and people like that, that they have a whole different lens that's so much sharper than mine that it, it allows me to be less ignorant about some things. And that's really what it is. But as a salesperson, if you're listening to this or watching a clip on this, the most important thing for you to know is that you have to be one up as it pertains to your industry and how you help people make decisions and get better results. But at the same time, you have to be uh, intellectually humble and have some humility to understand that there's so much that you don't know you can learn from your clients. I, I learned from so many clients over so long of a period of time 
I started to understand how business works because I was interested in it. And if you're interested in it, it will make you a much better salesperson if you pay attention to the business side of, of whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. And I pick up, you have a lot of natural curiosity, like even just saying, Hey, can I see that spreadsheet? Like one of the things I've started doing, I'm starting to work with clients that are a little bit you know, bigger now. And with that is more senior VPs that I work with, which is such a treat because these are people that, you know, they have decades more experience than I, than yeah. I do, you know, and little stuff like that. Um, what I'll always ask is if they're talking about numbers, I'll say, Hey, do you mind just sharing your, your screen? Can I see what you're looking at? And just how they look at their dashboards and how they think about numbers. And I think if more salespeople did that with their prospects, especially you know, someone that's a champion or people that would be using your product or interacting with it, you get to see how people look at what they do through, you always talk about lenses, like through their lens. And then now when I talk and I have conversations, it's those little things like throughput or, you know, uh, low volume, high customization manufacturing. You know what I mean? It's like all of those little things I'm thinking on my clients, that little bit like in a cold call makes a huge difference. Oh, that yeah. little bit in the first 10, 15 minutes of a discovery call, it's like, oh, cool. This person knows what they're talking about. Yeah. I could potentially learn something from them. So there's a lot of curiosity, it sounds like. And do you do you have any advice for someone that's maybe being curious is not something that comes very natural, you know, to them? Even if it's not natural to you, you can just say, you keep talking about this concept and I don't have a good grasp of how you guys are using it. Could you educate me on this? If you just ask a client, can you educate me on this that you're talking about? I'm not familiar enough with yeah. it. I understand the concept. They will love teaching you their business. They would love it. They, they so are true. very happy yeah. to tell you, like, we'll tell you everything you want to know so we can have somebody here who cares enough about this to help us with it. So I wouldn't yeah. be afraid or ashamed. But remember, you still have to be one up. So in your situation, which I'm familiar with, and I will uh, feel free to speak about, uh, and you can always edit this out, but I doubt you will. Like when you, when you walk in, like the senior leader, the last time they made a a cold call, uh, Bill Clinton was in office, you know, like they, they, they have no clue what it's like right now. They have no idea, but you're intimately aware of what's going on and you're having more conversations with people and helping more people. So you're one up when it comes to the, the cold call. They're one up when it comes to being a senior leader and having a big team and a big budget and a big goal. And, and so they're, they're one up in those things, but that's how we help each other. Like, you know, things that I need to know that would be helpful for me. And I know things that would be helpful for your team to help you get better results. And that's the, the nature of the relationship. So if you're one up on your, your side, you don't have to be, I, I think I commented this morning on Dave Brock's thing that says, but something about knowing more than your customer, it's not knowing more than them. It's knowing different things than them. Like they, they know yeah. what they know and they don't know what they don't know, but it, they're looking for somebody who does know what they don't know so that they can make yeah. the decisions. That's what a trusted advisor is. Like I need somebody who knows yeah. more than I do about this thing. I mean, when you explain it like that, it makes so much sense because in, in different contexts in our life, we don't think like this. You know what I mean? Like when you go to uh, a personal trainer, it's like, you know, that that person's not an expert at probably anything outside of giving you advice on what your workout plan should be. 
And you yeah. trust this person. You look at them as a credible person, you know, yet in sales for some reason, it's, I don't know. You just talked about imposter syndrome. Maybe it's that it's like, we feel like we have to know more than we actually do. And the more that I work with like more senior folks, it's, it's like the less they actually know about the thing that I help with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really funny actually. Um, and I want to ask you about the ego thing before we get into kind of shift gears a bit. Um, cause you're like a really confident person, but at the same time, you don't seem to really have an ego about a lot of things. Like you're very open to learning, you know, new ways of thinking. And, uh, and, uh, at least as, as far as I know, um, for people that are a little bit more senior that are listening or watching this, that have been selling, let's say for a couple decades, um, what advice do you have for people to like stay open-minded about stuff? You know, cause I run into this all the time in the work that I do where it's like, it's not people being stuck in their ways necessarily. It's just like, Oh, I've, I've seen this, you know, mm -hmm. like, why do I need to do anything different? It's status quo, yeah, you right. know, essentially, you well, know, but you, um, you have to recognize some part of this though. So if you've been doing solution selling for 30 years and you've won every deal that way, and I come mm -hmm. in and say, you know what, you could switch that up and get a little bit different of a response and dif differentiate yourself. Like I've done this my whole life. It always works for me, you know? And then as it stops working for them, then they start to realize it. But until then, why would they change? It's hard. It's hard to understand that there are better ways to do things. For me, um, the the lack of an ego is is not true. I mean, we all have an ego. and yeah. but, but I don't feel... I don't feel any need to defend anything that I say um, because it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, because I believe it. So it, it's okay yeah. if you don't like it or you don't believe it, it's fine. One of us is right. And if I say it, it's probably because I'm right because otherwise I don't have anything to say. And, and if I don't have anything yeah. to say, I don't have anything to say. And I'm comfortable saying, I don't really know enough about that to have an opinion. And I say it a lot. Like I don't, I don't know yeah. what I don't know. And I don't, I don't normally talk about things. I'll, I'll say this because you're writing a book. I just finished another book <laughs> that's not out yet. But I think you've written a book in the time that I've been writing a book, trying to write a book, dude. <laughs> I did. I, I'm sure I did. But but when you when you go into this, you know you you have to recognize th this thing that like you don't have to know everything. You just need yeah. to know the things that you know. And then you can be super humble. How else are you going to learn if you're not open to new ideas? And and I here's what I would say: What got you to this point is what you know. But to get to the next point, this isn't going to do it for you. Now you have to be open to new ideas. I had yeah. a, a meeting with some marketing people I'm doing some work with, and they said you're like the most disciplined person about doing what's necessary without arguing with us or without telling us you want to do something different or something like that. And I'm like, you're the expert. <laughs> like you're supposed to be a one up. I'm one down. Like I, I don't have a lot of opinions. I'm not a marketing guy. I'm not a marketing yeah. guy. So I'm a sales guy. I'm one to one. You're one to many. I'm not one to many. I walk into a room by myself. I started walking into a room by myself when I was 15 or 16 years old. And it's always worked out fine for me, but it's a different view. Right. But I'm willing to learn 
because whatever got me to this point is not what's going to get me to the next point. It's not going to get you to the next point. Smart people recognize that they are the benefits of being one down, which is if I'm open, and this is a shoshin, you know, so it's a beginner's mind. Like, don't yeah. pretend like you're the master. When I practiced Aikido, you know, there's no belt. There's no belts. There's just, that's all the belts are the same. <laughs> there's no, there's no way to tell anybody's rank. And the people who are the most humble and the best martial artists are the ones that still pretend that they don't know anything, even though they'll launch you across the room, you know, without yeah. moving very much. I would say that intellectual humility, good, good senior leaders always seem to have that. They're always willing to yeah. like, what don't I know? Cause that's, what's going to get yeah. me in trouble. Not knowing. Yeah. What I notice on those teams too, is that the reps that they attract and the people on their team tend to have that mindset too. It's like a, like attracts, like, you yeah. know, kind of thing. It's really weird. Um, okay. A big part of this approach is the, you know, I know something you don't know, you know, kind of thing, right? The insights. You talk about insights a lot. You've talked about it a lot in uh, Eat Their Lunch was, I feel like that was like a, you know, like a masterclass on insights and how to use them and that sort of thing. Um, with insights, how, where do I want to start with this? Because the problem that I see mostly <laughs> is that the company has not really enabled reps very much with insights. It's virtually zero across all the companies that I've worked with. And so I really think it's on the rep, you know, to find some of these things, but what, this is maybe a really kind of basic question, but what is a good versus bad insight? What makes something insightful, you know, to someone that's been doing their thing for a couple decades is very experienced. Like, can you yeah. just for someone that's never heard of this before, what is an insight? Is this a fucking 50 page white paper? Is it a YouTube huh. video? Like what not. is the insight? No, it could be any <laughs> you know? one of those, but I hope it's not. I mean, I hope you don't have a 50 page white paper I have to read. And if, if you do just like highlight the three lines I need to read and put yeah, no a little next to it and say like, this is the money part. Just don't worry about anything else. And that would be really great. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of things in inside and in elite sales strategies. Um, I I've twice used Gary Klein's work to try to explain this because Gary Klein is a, a scientist and he started to study um, how people make decisions under pressure. And so they were looking at nurses and um, emergency rooms and fire. They ended up with a lot of fire people. Uh, and he was in Cleveland when he was doing this. So he was here in Ohio. And what he found out was that there's this thing called recognition primed decision-making. And, and it's, you have so much experience that when something's not right, you can just tell. Like you automatically know you have this pattern recognition that happens really fast. But what his, his work ended up being was uh, about how do we find these insights and how do they show up? And for a lot of us, it shows up as a problem that you're trying to solve. And at some point you have this aha moment and the insights that people talk about, let me tell you the, the truth about insights. Uh, this is the truth about insights. What people think is an insight is some data point and, and some interesting fact that they think would be fun to share because it would do something. And 
I talked to the Federal Reserve last week because I'm on their business advisory council in Cleveland. And uh, I started off my conversation by saying, uh, what's the Fed's position on sex? And uh, the vice president said, uh, somebody used a bad word yesterday and I was uncomfortable and you just made me more uncomfortable. And I said, 21% of adult human beings in America did not have sex in 2021. And the birth rate is 58 births per 1,000 women right now. We have the lowest birth rate in the history of this country, including World War II, where most of the men were out of the country. And I said, you think inflation is going to go down, but it's going to keep going up for a little while because we don't have enough people in this country. We have 11 million open jobs, 5.9 million people not on unemployment and unemployed. That's it. And so I'm trying to explain like you're winding it up. It's not going to be winding down for a bit because we have a demographic problem. That's an insight. And it got his attention. Yeah. And and now I, I put something in his his mind now that he can't forget, especially because of the way that I did it. And that's just me being playful, right? Did, I'm did you have a big smile on your face when you said it? Yeah, of course I did. Like <laughs> I was enjoying this very much. It was mostly about entertaining me as well as the people <laughs> in the room. So yeah. Uh, it was as much as for entertainment value, but it did cause a whole bunch of people to say, I did not know any of that. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't either, but I study and I pay attention to things that, that are interesting and useful. And that was one of the things that I did. But what you're trying to do is not find funny things to say, even though that's helpful. You're trying to give somebody a paradigm shift. And so the paradigm yeah. shift is you think inflation is going to go down because you raised rates but the wages are still going to be going up. And this is what I did my whole life. Like I know this, the wages are going to keep going up because when there's supply and demand and the demand is far greater than the supply, prices go up. Okay, so how do you stop that? Not easy to do. And that's why it started to run away from them. You know, it was, they would like to have 2% inflation and they would take three, but they got 8.5. And you can't do anything about the fact that there's not enough people in this country. And that's why I did this, because I wanted to give him an insight that would cause them to say, how do we think about this? Because you got a demographic problem and they don't address that. They only think about monetary policy. So I give him a paradigm shift. Like this is going to be harder for you to move because, and that's what my role is, is to give them some sort of insight. But you're trying to get a paradigm shift. You're not just using insights. You're trying to say, these assumptions that you used last time you made this decision are no longer true because these things are now true. And what you're trying to do is move the lens out, put another lens in front of them so that they go, oh, I didn't know about 21% of Americans not having sex. Yeah. I didn't know it was only 58 births per thousand, which is the lowest number ever we've had. Like we have, we have like 1% growth in 2021. It's a terrible, terrible number. Um, we're not even replacing ourselves. So that, that's where we are. So after we hang up, you should probably replace yourself Started, and your yeah. wife and like add like <laughs> three or four more if you can do that. Oh, three or four. That sounds like a lot. Um, a lot. So, okay. This is really interesting because I think the, God, the thing that I really try to stress when you're doing outbound is that you're only going to get the, you know, there was that stat from Chet Holmes and their stuff around 3% of people being in a buying mode at, at a time. And like, that's, that's table stakes, dude, to get the people that are already primed and thinking about it. And with outbound, I think the, 
the reason, uh, the reason, one of the reasons why people have so much trouble is that because they're not leading with an insight, something that gets them to change their way of thinking, the only reason why someone would hop on a meeting with them is if they want to buy their thing. And that's statistically very, very few people. You're not going to get one out of three, one out of every four people that you reach out to to want to take a meeting with you unless you have something like this to share with them. Um, let's talk about the perspective, though, because that was one of the types of insights you talked about in your book was like contradiction or inconsistency, I thought was kind of an interesting way to think about it. But are you starting with what is kind of status quo for, for the people that I sell to? What is their status quo? Like, what's their way of thinking? What do they believe to yeah. be true? Is that kind That's of right. where you're starting? Yeah. 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 And then I have to, I have to change it. Like I, and what, what happens is when you start using data, like I just did, like 21% of adult Americans did not have sex in 2021. And now I have this point and they have to look at it. So if I put it up on a screen and you look at it, you have to try to interpret what does this mean? What's the implication of this? And then you start to say there's only 58 births per 1,000, the lowest number. It's less than half of what it should be. It's less than half right now. You have to go back to like 1970 to have that same number. But there were fewer people in the country at that time, by the way. It's a long time ago. So you start to look at that and they start to see the data. And now they get this cognitive dissonance. Like, I believe that this thing is true. There's plenty of people that are out of work. We should be able to get those people to work and that kind of thing, but they're not. Okay. So it's, it's not true. And we have a demographic problem, but when they start to interpret it themselves, they start to look at this and ask themselves, like, what does this mean for us? And you might have to do some interpretation and help them. But what you're trying to do is give them that shift so that they can understand like, this is what's actually true right now and what you need to focus on. Don't argue with me, Jason. Like I, I'm just showing you the data. Like you can argue yeah. with the Census Bureau, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Federal Reserve, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Gardner, Forster, argue with everybody you want to. But when this is what the data says, it's what the data says. So it's not enough just to say these things, but if you show people the data, and start to explain it to them, you're starting at a different point. But I want to go back to what you said, because you said the question was sort of uh, two pieces for me. The reason you start a conversation with something that's like an insight, or something that you can teach the client, or something that they're unaware of that would be helpful to them, is because your job is to create value for them. That's your job. Like Your job is to create value for the people that you're talking to. If you say, hey, are you thinking about buying a SaaS solution today? That's, there's not a lot of value in that question. There's not much there. And if you ask, uh, do you have a problem, you know, like a, a problem with your software? Yeah. That, that's, that didn't create any value for me. I, I, yeah. It's just you're trying to set up a, a way that you can tell me that you have a solution for it. Uh, everybody knows this. We've done it for 50 years. Like it's not a surprise to buyers that you're trying to find their problem. It's a true story. I think I put it in the book, but I can't remember now because I wrote another book in the meantime. But I did, literally, I gave a group of people a checklist of the kind of problems that clients would have so they could just sort of take note as they went along. And uh, the first person to use it had the client sit next to her on the same side of the table. And he took it away from her and he turned it into like a sushi uh, app. Like he was like, just marking off, I'll take two of these and three of these. Like he just filled it out and handed it back. And, and she, when she talked to me, she said, 
what am I supposed to do? And they just fill it out and hand it back. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I had no idea that they were going to look at it and then decide it was a menu for them, but they used it as a menu. Like, these are the problems that we have. What could you do about them? Uh, and that's what you do. Like, you're asking for the problem so you can talk about the solution. They're hoping that somebody can help them understand why they have the problem that they have, why their results aren't what they used to be, even though they keep doing the same thing they've been doing for 11 years. They want to understand. So I'll say this maybe the, the clearest way I can. They don't really want to be pitched, but they're happy to learn something. You know, they're, they're happy yeah. to get some information that will help them make a better decision in the future. And that's when you do good discovery. You do good discovery when you help them discover. We think that the dis good discovery means I found a problem. Congratulations, Jimmy. Everybody found that same problem. It's not that hard to do. But did you teach them anything that's going to say, I prefer to work with Jason because the way that he talks to us, I feel like every time he's here, I'm learning more about how we should do things. That's a different conversation and the, yeah. the right one, I would argue. Yeah, I love it. So we need to kind of understand what the point of view is of the people that we reach out to. And then, I mean, this is very... I know there's a lot of different opinions on the sort of challenger sale approach, but this is from what I can tell in line, you know, with that kind of, how can I educate someone in a way that's sort of, I don't know if provocative is the, uh, is the right way to do it, but it gets them to see a different, you know, kind of way to look at it. Let me know if this is an example. So I have a client that, um, it's essentially like an outsourced, uh, customer support. So they don't like to label themselves like that, by the way. But you know, people are using chatbots. So the landscape is, hey, we have chatbots. We have our internal people that do it from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. We might outsource this 24-7 stuff, or we might just turn it off completely uh, during non-business hours. And one thing that I've been working with them on that's, that's worked really well is you know, reaching out to someone. Let's say that you're a, a VP of customer experience, and I send you an email. It's got a video in it, and I say, hey... I was on your website, noticed that you guys don't have 24-7 chat. The reason why I was bringing that up is that uh, Zendesk, their data shows that 53% of people, if they can't get an answer within an hour outside of business hours, they're likely to tab pop and go to a competitor. And then we flip over to some of the competitors. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Like something like that where I'm leveraging a stat and then I'm yeah. able to maybe even kind of show them um, that they have a problem. Is that sort of in line with this approach? Yeah. And, and you don't even have to do it as, as, um, detailed as you did. You can say a, a number of groups have done studies on this and about 53% of people, uh, if you don't have a chat bot and you're not on their time zone and they want to talk to somebody or they want to get something done, you will lose them as a client. And, and if you can find the next piece of data, then it's even better to say, this looks like it costs companies something like 33% of the revenue that they would have captured. Oh, yeah. And now I'm, and now I'm, I'm only using this to give them the paradigm shift. Like I don't want chatbots. I want them to talk to a real human. The real human's not there at midnight, but the person who's yeah. trying to find their package is there at midnight. And so you have a mismatch here. Like they, they're on their time. You don't have somebody to help them and they move on. And yeah. So if you can get, if you can string together three or four data points on something like this, it's really hard to refute, especially if it's from multiple sources. And, and that's what you're trying to do is trying to open up the why change. And, and that's the yeah. difference between a modern approach and a, 
in what, what I would call a legacy approach. The legacy approach is why us? We got a great yeah. software. It's going to be great, great for you. Best chatbot on the in the business. Okay. Here's all the companies that use our stuff already. Yeah, and, and I I don't want a chatbot. Okay, so first I have to fix that, right? The, this person's yeah. main assumption is that a chatbot is something less than a human. Right. Uh, we agree on that. But at one seventeen on Friday night, and there's nobody there, that chatbot's pretty good. It's not a human, yeah. but it's going to keep the client for you. So yeah, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that you have to you have to try to move those things out of the way. Yeah. And the other thing I've noticed too, this is what I talk a lot about with people that sell more enterprise or strategic that I work with from a prospecting lens. It's like, dude, if you want to get the conversation with someone that's senior, like you, you have to get above the products, benefits and features, you know, you got to get above that and get into stuff that's more strategic in nature. Um, I want to talk to you about asking great questions. This is probably my favorite part of the book. Um, I call this question stacking. You know, I have same sort of thing. I think that you're doing, there was a, you're essentially putting the insight in, in your stacking the insight at the front part of the question. And then you're asking an open-ended like how or what based question around how they're dealing with that. Yeah. Can you talk more about that approach? Cause it is money for like cold calls. It's, it works really, really well. It works really well as a discovery, you know, kind of thing. But, um, how do you think about asking like really great questions that are, All you know, right, that so have these insights and stuff. This, kind of this is going to be a, a little bit edgy for some people. So I'm giving you okay. a, a trigger warning of types here. Um, I want to put them in a box and then yeah. I want to put a lid on the box and I want to nail the box shut with you in it. Yeah. Now, what would I name that box? Context. The, the box is called context. So now I've got you in a box of context because I gave you all these data points which I just explained to you how I did that with the Fed. Like, I want them to understand this. So yeah. they, they don't have a policy on demographics at all, but they're responsible for two things, keeping inflation low and keeping full employment. Okay, not doing so well on those things. So I wanted to put them in a box so that they would go like, we should probably have a conversation about this. And, uh, and it will probably happen because I've, I've been twice very close to uh, winning what they call a Stevie which is the best thing that they heard uh, through all the beige book things. When I'm doing this, what I'm trying to do with that first part is to put the context there. So now the question has this context already baked into it. So now yeah. you have to address this part of it where you may or may not know what you're talking about. You may or may not have an answer. And what I'm trying to do is the aha moment. I'm trying to get them to go, you've had this happen, Jason. I guarantee it's happened for you. Uh, you're talking to somebody, you're talking to the client, and you say something like, when was the last time that you guys did any role playing with the individuals and then yeah. re review that? Question yeah. yeah. And so you ask that and they're like, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And you know what that means? <laughs> like, you just taught me something about me that I didn't notice. Yeah. And now, and now it's like, yeah. Jason's smart. Why is he smart? Cause he asked really good questions. And they're the questions that we can't answer. And as soon as they have that aha moment and you're there for it, like they're buying from you. I, I'm, I'm yeah. going to say it's guaranteed, but it's all but guaranteed if you're good after that. When they start realizing like this person's helping me think through what I'm supposed to be doing that I wasn't doing. And this is going to save me a lot of time and trouble in the future. If somebody helps me recognize these things, that's the one up position. 
And so yeah. I like to embed the context first because I don't want you to wriggle out of it. You know, I don't, I don't want you to yeah. do that. I want, I want to make it so you have to tell me the truth and you yeah. have to do it in the context of the conversation. So it's not a hypothetical. Uh, I yeah. want you to actually struggle with the question. It's so freaking pointed too. It yeah. is like so pointed. Most people in discovery, when I listen to the recordings, it's so broad, the conversation. It's like, so tell me about uh, your team's outbound challenges. Can't get them to make enough calls, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no How shit, Sherlock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know? Um, the other thing I always ask that's really funny is uh, I'll say, you know, Anthony, most of the time what I see in sales organizations is that the salespeople are really good at practice. They practice on their prospects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And there's no sort of simulations or role plays or anything like that so that, you know, yeah. they're not practicing on the prospects. How do you make sure that your reps aren't blowing opportunities by practicing on the C-level executives you guys are reaching out to? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, and everybody gets kind of a chuckle out of it. I, I would, I like that. I, I'm trying to think about, I, I would say it probably like, um, how much does you, how much do you think it costs you to ruin that first call? Because it's the first time this person has ever said what's coming out of their mouth right now. And that yeah. client is going to be completely uh, uninterested. How much does it cost? Like, what, what, what are you guys doing to, to lower the cost of practicing? I mean, how much are you spending to do this? Like, just give them a, like the more, the more pointed, like, yeah. I don't know, like, what does it cost us? I don't know exactly what it costs you, but I can tell you it's not cheap to do this this way. I have no idea why people don't practice. Like, why, why wouldn't yeah. you, it's free. You put two people yeah. together and you say, uh, uh, Anthony and Arino, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> you know, that it's that hard. Yeah. Like, and then they would feel so much more, and you already know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I'm saying this for the people uh, listening to this. So much more confidence and so much more competence if they get to practice. And I know yeah. everybody says, well, I don't want a script. You already have a script. It's just a bad script, Johnny. We have to give you a yeah. better script. That's why you're not doing well. But they're scripted anyway. But let's make sure it's a really good script. Now, the thing that salespeople are concerned about is sounding like they're reading a script. That's why you rehearse. So you never have to look at it on paper because you already have it memorized and you can say it with confidence and, and then yeah. you're most of the way home. I think it maybe, God, I can't remember who said it. Someone made an analogy, some other person that does sales training around um, scripts being like uh, actors in movies. Yeah. They say scripted. confident doesn't sound scripted. You know, yeah, just practice. You know, I Except think for that... Marlon Brando when he got older, and yeah. he would have to, he would tape the his part of the script on the actor sitting across from him. Oh, really? So so he that. could read them. Yeah, he gave up on that. He gave up on the studying part. I just watched Godfather for the first time over uh, this Whoa. last Christmas. Changed my life, man. The very best movie ever made. Yeah, definitely. It now completely changed my life. Buy the book and read the book. And then I want to talk oh, yeah? to you after you read the book. There's a yeah, giant, there's a giant piece of the story that's missing from the movie that I won't share, but it's, uh, it's the book is amazing. And you get a lot of philosophy from uh, Don Corleone. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's worth reading. 
so you know what's really funny is so one of the things that um correct me if i'm getting this wrong but one of the things you talk about is the time value trade is that what you call it i call it uh trading value yeah trading value and um the way that i teach cold calling or uh, sorry objection handling is that you know, there's only two objections really there's the objection to the interruption like if you're calling someone most of the time they're just objecting to being like cold called you know and then the second one is the objection of sort of what you talk about where you know is it going to be worth me trading my time right. you know for you you know and is it worth me to talk to you for another half hour so if they say they already have a solution um call me back next quarter we already implemented something. We do it in house. We don't have the budget. It's really not any of those things. It's the it's the trade, you know, right. the value trade. Right. It's always the and trade. the thing, and the thing that I uh, talk about because it's what made me think of Godfather is, you got to make them an offer they they can't refuse. The right. offer they can't refuse is the insight. It's the customer story. Uh, someone else like you was dealing was in a similar situation. Here's the insight, and if nothing else, you're going to get some some ideas. You're free to steal. You, you have to have an offer that's just like, you would feel like an idiot for saying no to it. You know what I, I mean? I learned this when I was, um, how old? I got to go to 2001. So I'm 34. I got a client. I can't get him to change. I need him to pay more money so that they can get the results. I'm going to get fired because they're not getting the results they need. And it's not my fault. They're just under market. And I spend yeah. months and months working on this problem. Can't get it done. <laughs> can't get it done. Nothing, nothing works for me. And in a, in, in one of a Gary Klein kind of things, like the aha moment is you're just, you're so desperate that you try something. And, yeah. and that's what I did. I built a slide deck that was about a hundred slides in 2001. Some of these things wow. I was like taking, literally taking pictures of newspaper articles because there, I didn't have a scanner and like, it was hard to, to move things onto that kind of a platform at that time. So did I, you have floppy disk? Did you have to put it in the floppy disk? And then I did have a disk. Yeah, no, I had a disk. There's no doubt about yeah. it. So, so I I built this thing and I presented to this group of people, and uh, and this is where I would love to tell you I was smart enough to just immediately change my approach, but I didn't. It took me months, but I I, I bludgeoned them with data, like every bit of data, like you versus this competitor in the same neighborhood, and all these things, and it went on for about an hour. I mean, it's a lot of slides and, and some of them are just repeating the same data again with another source. And, uh, yeah. and, and it was me winning an argument. I, I just wanted to win the argument. The argument is labor is not abundant. Labor is not cheap. That's the, that's the whole argument I was trying to win. And at the end, the guy that was the, the main guy for HR, uh, he was a full bird colonel in Vietnam. So not, not a, not a particularly warm and fuzzy guy. Uh, I yeah. liked him. He liked me a lot. And at the end of it, he said, can I have a copy of that? No one ever asked me for a copy of a slide deck before. Like never. Yeah. Like the one with my big picture on the, the, the front of it, like none of that stuff. They didn't, no one asked for that. I said, why do you want it? And he said, I'm going to brief our senior leadership team this afternoon. It'd be really handy to have that. And I said, okay, I'll give it to you. And he goes, take your logo off. And I was like, come on, like, that's too much, right? Like, I get no credit for doing your homework. And yeah. I, I took it off. I gave it to him. And two hours later, he called and he gave me $2 million. And he gave wow. me $2 million, not for me, he gave me $2 million to raise their pay rate. 
And then yeah. immediately we got them the results that they needed. Now I would love to be, tell you, like I was smart enough to immediately recognize the value of an insight deck, but I didn't even have a concept of an insight deck. I was just trying to win a fight. That's it. Like, we're going to argue over yeah. this thing again. I'm going to win this time. And that's what I tried to do. Maybe two weeks, maybe a month after that, I'm at a company called Takumi in Cincinnati. Uh, they do car parts. And I reached to grab my laptop. And the guy sitting across from me says, uh, put the laptop away. You don't need it. And I said, what? <laughs> like, I, I have a, a slide deck here. I want to I walk you through it. He goes, I don't want to see any of your slides. And I was like, oh, okay. He goes, I have questions. I'm going to ask you the questions. If you answer them and the answers are good, I'll probably work with you. And I said, but on that laptop, I'm going to have a lot of answers where you're actually going to get to see how we do these things. And he goes, I don't want to see any of it. And I'm like, okay. Uh, I want his business. And then I had a friend call me not too long after that. And he said, I walked into this conference room and I plugged in my laptop. And the senior leader was sitting there and he said, if you open that laptop, I'm going to throw your ass out of here. <laughs> and I'm like, people are really grouchy about these slide presentations. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know. It took me a little while. And then what I would tell you is that what I learned is that if you have a way to get this paradigm shift, like take their false assumptions and bring them up to speed people really will engage with that. Like, I want to know what's happening right now. I want to understand what we should be doing. What I found out was that I could take that same briefing, which never ended up being a hundred slides again, like nothing close to that, like maybe eight, uh, yeah. all just data. And we would give it to people way under senior leadership. We would give it to them. And now they know more than senior leadership and they start mm. complaining we're out of line with what the rates are. Uh, there's the unemployment's way too low here. We're never going to get these people. And they would start griping up until they got what they wanted. And, and eventually we get uh, walked in. And after I started using that as my primary approach, people started calling and going like, are you going to come in and brief us at the end of the year? And I was like, uh, yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> I had nothing to brief them at the end of the year. And I'm like, now I got to come up with another brief because they want to know what to do in the next following year. And, and that's in a really good spot because now they're, you're feeding them. You keep feeding yep. them and, and they're going to feed you too. That's how it works. So I, it took me months and months before I realized you don't really need to talk about you at all. And, and literally in one of my family staffing businesses, there's not a proposal. There's not a slide deck. There's a, an insight deck and a contract, and that's it. They have no other wow. resources. There's, there's no other resources available to them. That's all they have. Yeah. We and could talk for a whole other hour just on this topic. I, I talk to reps. It depends on the company culture, but sometimes I come into a company culture where they it's really heavy pitching in the cold call. Very heavy. Hey, Anthony? Yeah. Jason with XYZ company, I was calling because we do XYZ with these companies and I was calling the schedule, you know, the usual kind of thing. And when I present the idea of, hey, you guys, you know, you can do a cold call where you lead by talking about what you found in your research and then asking what they're focused on, but suggesting two or three really common things that people like them are focused right. on. 
and just ask really good questions around that, you don't even need to talk about your company. People like shit their pants. Yeah. Like, wait, we, we have to pitch our company. It's it feels uncomfortable for them not to do it. I was like, I if the person asks you, so what does XYZ company do? You're in the driver's seat, dude. That's a really good thing. You can answer that in 30 seconds and then just say, hey, how about we unpack this on a, you know, at a time where I'm not cold calling you in the middle of your day. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, the pitching thing is just crazy to me. Like you don't have to pitch. It's it's really difficult for people to understand this concept. And I'm trying to get better at teaching it. So I always think that if you don't understand yeah. what I'm saying, it's my fault, not yours. So Me I too. have to get better yeah. at teaching. Um, there's the sales conversation. And and then there's a the solution. And this, the sales conversation doesn't really have anything to do with the solution. But we pretend that it is the 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 thing that we should be talking about. There's so many things better to talk about than the solution. And what people mistake, I think, this is probably the biggest mistake that being one up would help people out of, is that they think I'm gonna be credible when I lean on my company and when I lean on our results with these clients, when I show people these logos and I explain the value of our solution. So here's the way I would describe this. So you're gonna talk about nouns. So you're going to talk about your company. You're going to talk about clients. Those are nouns, right? Those are nouns that you have. You got a solution. That's a noun. Like that, that, that's a noun. So that's what you got. You're talking about nouns and it's all hypothetical. Like this is going to create great value for you because you have this problem. Well, I can't feel any of that value, Jason. I can't feel any of it. Like it, nothing is very helpful right now because you're talking about things that I don't care about and that are all hypothetical. Okay. So what do you do? You talk about, here's how to update your, your assumptions. Here's how to think about making this decision. Here's some of the factors that you should weigh. Here's some of the people that you're going to probably need to bring into this. Here's probably the conversations that you're going to need to have if you want to get this done in a, in a meaningful way, in a reasonable amount of time. That's an interesting conversation. And then they go, I learned so yeah. much from that conversation. I feel better prepared to talk to my team about this now. Okay, now that's good. That's a win. Then if you do a really good job with the sales conversation, then you win the business and then they get to experience your solution. But for some reason, we're like, the solution's going to do all the work in this thing for me. And no, it's not. And, and to your point, like, tell them about the features and benefits. They could care less. I know the SaaS people that I get to talk to and that send me notes, they're like, I can't get a senior leader to go through the demo. Right. Right. Because they they're never going, <laughs> they, they, they are never going to see your software. They will never yeah. see your software. And if you tell them like, you have to see the software, we can't sell it to you. They're like, uh, your offer's accepted. <laughs> we won't buy yeah. it. It's fine. Like you, you're not having the right conversation with people, but if you did get a senior leader, you would want to go right to level four, which is what's the strategic outcome. We're going to give you back time. We're going to give you back money. We're going to give your people a different experience. Like you better get something that they care about into that list. And, and I want to go back to one thing that you said, you know what their problems are. You were, you're not calling them because you hope you get some new and novel problem to solve. Right? Like when, yeah. when, when you talk to somebody, you're like, I'm really good at helping people with cold calling. But if you need your lawn mode, you know, I could do that too. If, if that's your problem, like, no, you know what problem you're solving. So you, you talk about 
the things that help people understand how you think about those problems and how they should think about those problems. And that's really what you're doing inside the sales conversation. The most important thing and the most unrecognized, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. I appreciate now, you coming on. We're and at now we switch I've... gears. Yeah. To, but we, we do have one thing that we still have to cover, and that is what is the best Eddie Van Halen uh, performance on an album? Oh, shit. Okay. So you got some time to shoot the shit right now, it sounds like. Okay. So best Eddie Van Halen performance. Oh, man. Dude, it's really hard to beat the first album. I mean, it's really, really hard to beat. the. Uh, I know that he talks about not liking his tone on the first couple albums, but that crunchy just, it's, it's so deceiving sounding because it's like pushed to one channel and it's got all this reverb, this plate reverb on the other channel. It's really crunchy. There's not really that much gain on it. Have you listened to the isolated tracks on YouTube? Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. And you hear it, you're like, it's so clean, yet he's able to do the tap harmonics and all this other stuff. That, I mean, the tone that I think of on that album is like Jamie's crying, the don't, like that just like crunch, you know? Um, I like that one. And then I'm also, the other extreme of that is I really like the tone on balance with Sammy Hagar. I know it was a little heavier and it was more, but he used his old Marshall for a lot of the songs in that album. So those in are the two that's, yeah, those are the two that stick out to me. And then I also riffs wise, um, ah, God, probably 1984 with just like the riffing, you know, Panama drop dead legs is really, really good. Hot for teacher house of pain. You Michael know, McDonald wrote the lyrics for, um, drop dead legs. Oh, really? It's such yeah. a funny song. David um, Lee Roth didn't finish you? it. What about you? I, I, I got to go with uh, Fair Warning. Uh, oh, yeah. Fair Warning is another great album, too. Yeah. And I still love Diver Down. Uh, Diver Down was oh, just so playful. It's my least favorite Van Halen, oh. Van Halen album. There's too many covers for me on that album. Still still one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. What, yeah. Do, what do you like on Fair Warning? everything like a, a certain yeah. certainly unchained and all that stuff like that, that's a great record yeah beginning to end yeah and dirty movies are, are hearing our our music nerd talk yeah <laughs> yeah because <laughs> we because save this for the end because we yeah because we could have talked for an hour <laughs> yeah we could have we could have started at van halen that would have been bad for other people good for us yeah um but i i like them much better live though with sammy like the live without a net that tour, the fifty-one fifty tour, was just. I mean, Sammy's a great he's, songwriter. He's a great oh, songwriter. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I, I saw them with the first tour, fifty-one uh, fifty, with Sammy oh, at the at Monsters of Rock, and they were amazing. I'm a, a Sammy Hagar fan anyway, so I wasn't upset. Yeah. Uh, when he joined, but that's a that's just like a, a great band, uh, a great yeah. band with Sammy Hagar in it. Then yeah, after that, dude, Gary would... Sharon, and I don't know what to say about that. That was just a mistake, right? That was weird. That album, there's some really good guitar work on that album, but the songs are just not great, you know? Um, a different kind of truth. The newest one they did with David Lee Roth was actually kind of interesting, but I didn't like the guitar tone on it. It was way, like, scooped, 
and super, super heavy. But, um, <laughs> dude, I could talk to you about this forever. So tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow is my, my, one of my buddies who we played together from when I was maybe like 17 to 26. And yeah. I asked him when Eddie Van Halen died, I said, I think that we could play, I know for certain we could play the entire first album. We could yeah. play the entire second album. Uh, there was one song we were missing off of uh, Women and Children First. And he he reminded me that we, we missed one on that. And we could yeah. play, play Fair Warning. Like we could play, we learned how to play whole albums instead of yeah. learning how to play songs. So we would play the whole album. And I said, I think we had like the first four. We could play everything. And he goes, nope, uh, Torah, Torah. We couldn't play that. We never played that. But we did play everything else. And it always worked. Like you show up in a a bar in the middle of Ohio and you you are fine to play Van Halen all day. And if yeah. you get bored, you just move to Led Zeppelin and everybody's happy. And it works that yeah. way. I used to play in a band in, uh, in high school and college we did, but I was at the time not good enough to play most of the Van Halen stuff. The the other thing too is that, you know, I I felt like it was disrespectful to cover a Van Halen song if I didn't play the solo how he played it. If I just okay. tried to wing the solo and do a little tapping and, you know, like stuff like that, it felt disrespectful to me. <laughs> you yeah, know? Had, uh, we had a guy here, uh, a guitarist named Matt Bradley, and he could play everything Van Halen yeah. perfectly, note for note. Yeah, he yeah. was great at it. Well, where where can people where can people buy Van Halen? No, I'm kidding. Where can where can people check out Elite Selling, Elite Sales Strategies? Excuse me. Um, which I I read it cover to cover, and if you're listening, definitely like pick it up. I feel like it's. I said this to you before. It it feels like a, like a greatest hits with bonus tracks on it from like all the stuff that you've done is what it feels like to me. Um, but great book. So definitely definitely check it out. But where can people Go to check you out, check the book. Like, where's the best place to follow you? Thesalesblog.com. It has to be thesalesblog.com because Gittimer got sales blog and then he sat on it for years and years and didn't use it. So I had, I got stuck with this one and uh, he was unhappy when he found out that I had it. So and that, yeah. that's a good thing to know. Thesalesblog.com. LinkedIn's great. I, I like LinkedIn too. I'm engaging with a lot of people there and I like it a lot. So that's a good spot. 